Daniele, welcome to the metagame. Thank you so much for having me. So the big reason why I want to talk to you is because you strike me as a real philosopher, and I contrast that with an academic philosopher. And I was saying this before we hit record, it seems like academic philosophy is a bit of a word game, but from what I can tell from what you do, you're actually curious about how to live a good life. So I wonder if you agree with that dichotomy, and maybe if you could tell me how you think about philosophy. Yeah, I think I grew up with that dichotomy because my dad wrote a ton of books that were technically meeting my definition of philosophy, which is very much in line with what you are describing. But definitely, I think he said something like, within academia, academic philosophers would chase him away with a broom if they try to, you know, there are very different approaches. So much of academic philosophy, there was a line by Henry David Thoreau that talked about the presence of uh, philosophologists, meaning people who talk about other people's philosophy, not Mm. people who actually live a philosophy, embody it or create it. And I think that's the big difference right there. A lot of academic philosophy, like a lot of academic anything, you know, to be honest, there's a lot of it that's um, sort of self-involved, sort of built for talking to other people who have the same hobby and you chat with your special nerdy language. And, and so much of it has real, no real world application and no relevance ultimately to most people's lives. My idea of philosophy is the exact opposite, mm. and it, which is kind of what my dad was going for, too. It's like more of a vital philosophy, more of an energetic philosophy, more of a philosophy that is supposed to produce results. If it doesn't produce results, it's not a philosophy. You know what I mean? And, it, and I don't mean, you know, <clears throat> result could be making you feel better about living life. Result could even be an emotional thing, but it still need to make a measurable impact on your day-to-day life otherwise what are we doing it for yeah and you're also a historian so i wonder if is there a historical moment where philosophy took this weird turn right because it's kind of strange that contemporary philosophers aren't concerned about results but are more concerned about these uh these in-group word games do you know what the history of that is I mean, I think to be to be perfectly honest, throughout the history of philosophy, for me, is very hit and miss. There mm-hmm. are either philosophers that I love from A to Z that I find they are so powerful and impactful, or things that I my mind just zones out after six seconds because I don't feel even very important philosophers. I just read them and I'm like, what am I doing here? You what know, are some why examples? Am I a lot of, um, I mean, going as far back as some of the classic, you know, you read Aristotle and I'm just like, Jesus, man, why am I doing this to myself? Uh, you read uh, so much of modern, like anything from Descartes to Kant to some of these guys. I'm just like, eh, I, they don't speak to me in any way, shape or form. And uh, whereas other guys going as far back as, you know, you look at pre-Socratic philosophers like Heraclitus, you look at Taoism, you look at Nietzsche, you look at technically not a philosopher, might as well be like Thoreau that I was mentioning a bit ago. There are some of these guys who just 
brilliant. Like their words speak to me right away. They hit the right spot. And, and so that's kind of my thing with philosophy is very, it's either the temperature is very much on or is very much off. It's a rarely lukewarm in between. How much of that do you think is a personal temperamental thing? Like you just happen to be a certain way, so you vibe with some philosophers versus the ones you named actually being onto something that is universally true? Um, I think both to some degree, in the sense that some of it is me, no doubt. Some of it is uh, the language that I enjoy listening to, the kind of phraseology. All of that stuff is just my personal taste. Other aspects are um, are probably, there are some universal things that I'm attracted to that I don't find uh, treated well or treated at all in the works of many other philosophers. So I know um, you're a fan of Nietzsche, you've been influenced by Nietzsche, and I also know, I learned actually mm-hmm. through you, that your favorite historical figure is this uh, controversial Zen master named IQ, IQ Sojun. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, and IQ just re- is hilarious. So, so tell, tell the listeners uh, the story about IQ and maybe why he's sure. your favorite. Sure. IQ was born in the late 1300s, I want to say 1394 or somewhere right around there in the last decade of the 1390s as the legitimate son of the emperor of Japan. His mom, after a falling out at court, placed him in a Zen monastery when he was five. So, you know, he grew up without a father, really, without a mother, other than sporadic contacts, because he was in this temple all the time, which is probably not the happiest kind of setup for a little kid to grow up in. Mm. Um, Incredible grasp of Zen, and precisely because he had an incredible grasp of Zen, he was very much at odds with the Zen establishment, which in Ikkyu's view had become a bureaucracy that had very little to do with the real spirit of Zen, with the real energy of it all. And and he became a very uh, controversial, iconoclastic figure in many ways, because he, at some point, when in Zen there was this tradition that when you, when your teacher recognizes you as enlightened, they give you a certificate of enlightenment, which become like your PhD to go teach places and so on. And Dickie was like, come on, guys, are, we, are you serious? Certificate of enlightenment. So he proceeded to burn it, hmm. which is like, you do not do that. You know, yeah. you spend, people would spend their whole life trying to get it. And then that would be their step to be higher up in, He's like, I'm not doing this because I want to be part of some spiritual bureaucracy or something. Even when at one point, they, because he's so brilliant, they try to reel him in. So they figure by giving him some responsibility, maybe they can. And they give him, uh, they make him add both of this one temple. And then within a few days, nobody can find him anywhere. And they find this poem that he left behind in his quarters that said something along the lines like, Nine days in this temple, and I just can't take it anymore. If anybody come looking for me, please, I'm either at the Saki store or I'm at the brothel. And, you know, his thing is he enjoys this um, mix of sacred and profane, saying some of these things that would sound highly offensive to people who are on to a very artificial idea of what the sacred is. Right. Because to him... 
real Zen, real sacredness is daily life lived with full awareness. Hmm. And then this daily life lived with full awareness also translated in, at least for what he was concerned into a certain degree. He was one thing that I really appreciate about it is that everybody remarks that as much of a troublemaker as he could be, he was a very kind person. Mm. People flocked to him because they like his company. He was just a sweet guy. He was funny. He was brilliant, but also very nice. Because so often you hear many of the people who reject the rules, they do so for very self-serving reasons. And often it turns into taking advantage of other people and so on. You never hear about EQ. And I think that's a very important point in this equation. Because it's one thing to reject artificial rules. It's another thing to be able to live outside those rules, being a decent human being. And Nick, you seem to do that very well. And, and he enjoyed this thing of like, he would always say how Zen was one of his passions along with women and drinking, which of course it sounds like, what? But to him, it's like, they are all part of living life fully. I, they're all things. In the process of uh, his wild adventure, he had a huge impact on the cultural history of Japan because many of his students became uh, people who created some of the key art forms in Japan from uh, having a big impact on theater, on calligraphy, on painting, on Zen gardening, on you name it, you know, all over poetry, painting, the whole thing. So, um, I don't know, yeah, Ikki is just... Uh, He's such a life-affirming guy. He's just a joyous guy that despite going through a lot in his life, he always found a way to enjoy it. There's a line of his in particular. That's one of my favorite lines in all of literature where he says, uh, throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy it. Mm. Which I love it because it's not just pretending that everything is great. You know, he had knowledge. There's... There are real, there's real horror out there. There are terrible things out there. There's real hell out there. But even in hell, in a defiant kind of way, I'm going to find a way to beat the odds and enjoy it. And, and I love that attitude because it's both very realistic, but also optimistic. And usually we are stuck with this dichotomy between either depressing realism or naive optimism. And we seem to marry both at the same time. Yeah, you brought up a bunch of amazing themes there that I'd like to go go through individually. And the first sure. one was this idea of the sacred and the profane. And it's interesting to me because you said one of the things you like about him is that he blended or he removed the artificial, you used the word artificial notion of sacredness. And I interpreted that as starting to recognize that there's actually sacredness in mundane things or in things that our culture might dismiss away. But then the next thought for me was, I feel like these days we don't really have a notion of sacred. It's almost like everything's already been blurred. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, I wonder what the right way is to think about sac sacredness and prof profaneness today. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. In some way, this may sound like I'm going on a tangent, but I think I have a point. Let me mm. see. Um, it makes me, what you're saying makes me think of uh, parenthood, for example. You know, on one hand, parenthood is very mundane. It's very changing diapers, playing with little kids, uh, doing stuff that does not exactly seem like the most deeply spiritual or sacred thing in the world in terms of, you know, 
sitting in a monastery, not as position, meditating about life and the universe. It's a dirty business. It's a tiring business. It's a funny business. It's uh, and at the same time, there's nothing more sacred. You know, mm-hmm. there's that's how you not only you can enjoy life a lot that way, but also how you have the biggest influence on any other human being you're ever going to run into in life through something like that. So I find that the combination, that ability to uh, find find the sacred, because again, you're right. You know, if you don't have a sense of sacred, what are you doing? If everything to you is the same and it's just entertainment, you're already dead in a sense because you're just killing time until you die. Whereas to me, it's like you need to have a strong sense of sacred, but it's a sense of sacred that comes from joy and from daily life, you know, from uh, you find it in daily life. You don't find it somewhere out there in a distant. And so that's where to me is uh, where the real game is played is uh, sacred is how you wake up and you walk and you talk to people around you the impact that you have on the people you run into on a day-to-day basis, that's it. No, that's, and it should be treated as such without a sense of, you know, because that's the other problem. When people think, I'm going to do this in a sacred way, they get this sense of self-importance and they mm-hmm. become fake and they become, and it's like, no, there's a great Zen line that say enlightenment, just like ordinary life, just one foot above. You know, it's just a tiny shift in consciousness where you're going through the same stuff as ordinary life, but you're doing with a degree of presence, of energy. That's a little different than what most people do. And it's the same reason why you see people who, you know, at a party or any place where there are a bunch of people, you gravitate towards certain people and not others. Not just because of how they look or some other superficial reason, but also because they have a certain energy to them that mm. makes you want to be around them. Yeah, I guess the lesson of EQ is that he is emphasizing that state of consciousness as opposed to the the subjects or the the material of consciousness. So it's not mm-hmm. that you're in the Zen monastery doing these strange rituals. It's that you bring a certain mental posture to whatever you're doing, even if it's changing diapers. And what's interesting to me here is, so I've, I've become a lot more interested in the importance of ritual, which in a way sounds like it's on the other end of the spectrum here. But the reason is I feel like so much of life turns into this big blur, especially if you're like working remotely and you're like in the same room all the time. And the yep. only thing that changes context is like the windows on your monitor and so there's nothing to demarcate a change in uh, mental state. And so rituals can can do that. So one example is I had an extra closet in my room and I made it into a little meditation um, area. And I, I put nice wallpaper up and I put a nice chair there. And I can only sit on that chair if I'm going to meditate. And it's like totally arbitrary. Sure. But I created some form of a container for me to prompt that that attitude shift that intellectual posture that state of of consciousness and so i can see how ritual can be really useful and then maybe at some point people start just doing it for the sake of the ritual and then they forget what the whole the whole point is definitely and i agree with you tremendously about the importance of rituals because to me rituals are are key because 
every one of us, no matter what an amazing insight you may have had, um, that insight eventually turns tale. Yeah. That energy turns tail. That so you need, uh, in that sense, kind of quote unquote enlightenment. It's not a state that you achieve once and it's done and now you have it forever. It's something that it's like it's like you lit a fire, but of course the fire is gonna go out eventually. So you need to keep adding wood to the fire. And rituals do that. That's the whole point of ritual is putting you in a space that allow you to turn the button back on where you can go back into daily life with uh, it's sort of you shined the, your armor, so to speak, or you swept the floor and cleaned it from all the dust that are accumulated there. And now you can go back into daily life refresh, looking at it with new eyes again. So to me, rituals are super important. Most of my rituals tend to be very physically based. Mm. To me, things like uh, lifting weights is a great ritual. Uh, doing martial arts because it focuses to be in the moment and you have very little time for extraneous thoughts is a ritual. Uh, going into a sauna is a ritual. Mm. You know, things where for a little bit, the body brings you back to the here and now in a way that personally I find very difficult to do it just through a mental process. So I have an easier time when my rituals have a physical component to them. Yeah, I would almost define ritual as requiring a physical component because otherwise you're you're only activating one small part of you. You know, I don't think you can have I don't, I don't think it's complete. Like a ritual for me needs to have a conceptual piece to it, but also a physical and I would say maybe symbolic or narrative piece. And maybe that's the one that we struggle with the most as modern people because you can imagine if you're religious then you have a cosmic narrative that like answers that third variable. And now you're not just doing this because you heard some people say it's worth doing on a podcast. You're doing it because God told you to and everyone you right. know does it. And it's part of this big story. Um, I know, I know you're, this is maybe we're branching out here, but I know you also have written a lot about religion and uh, often critically, but there's this quote, um, which I might get wrong, but you said something like, secular movements are doomed to failure because they don't lessen the fear of the unknown. It was something like that. So yep. you obviously also have a lot of respect for the need of religion. And I, I'm i curious um, in, this con in, in what we're talking about now with ritual and relighting the fire, what role does religion play and how do you, how do you th then fulfill that role as a non-religious person? That's an excellent question because that's such a key theme. You know, it's something that I've, the modern world very much struggles with this dichotomy between sometimes force of religions that feel stale and they no longer speak to people, and at the same time, a secularism that's not delivering the, the stuff that makes people drawn to, toward religious practices. I think the main issue is that, like, I personally care about outcome more than about what the process is. Mm. So to me, it's like, I don't care what you say you are. You can be Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Taoist or nothing at all or atheist. Could not care less, right? I'm interested in what does your practice mean in your day-to-day -day life behavior? If uh, your practice makes you a kinder human being, 
that's who somebody who's nice to their neighbor, who's patient with his kids, who's uh, sweet to the people around you, who's strong, who's resilient. I love it already. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't need to share. Maybe, you know, whatever you got from that particular tradition is something that I, if I look at the same tradition, it wouldn't translate to that behavior for me because I'm built different. Mm. But who cares? It clearly works for you extremely well. So in that case, I'm a fan. And uh, discussing theology becomes useless because it's like, who cares? There is no, in this sense, right or wrong about certain ideas. It's like, if they have a certain impact on you, I like, that's all that matters. And I need to figure out the ones that can have the same impact for me. And so in that regard, I think is the problem with many religious rituals or religion in general is it's often too rigid, too codified. Mm. You know, inevitably something that's practiced by millions of people it's a bit set in stone in its parameters. You know, the way you can tweak it is there's not as much room for individual variation. And I think it's extremely important for people to find something that works for them and not simply go through the motions of what being a religious person is about according to that one tradition. So I think is why it's great to free yourself from the shackles of traditions that are too rigid if they don't work for you, because maybe they do work for you, in which case you have nothing to free yourself from. They are great. Mm. But if they don't work for you, finding something else that works for you, which may not be, maybe it's another tradition, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's a mix of ideas that you create for yourself. You're creating your own path. You're creating your own ritual. But the key element is, do they work? Do they make you a nicer person? Do they make you resilient in the face of harsh things coming your way in life? Do they? If they do, good job. Then you created something sacred. You created, in the sense, your own religious path. And that, to me, is just as, again, it's just as great. I don't have a, I'm not saying that's what everybody should do, because, again, right. if it works for you within a tradition, great. But if it doesn't, then ultimately the goal is the same is how you get there that matters and Mm. so I'm interested in um, because I rarely find that a one size fit all approach to religion works for most people I'm interested in the stuff that people create in their place yeah what comes to mind here is my personal journey because I was raised as a Christian um I don't even know what denomination we were, maybe evangelical. And then the thing that led to me basically lapsing on my faith or no longer using it as my worldview, there were really two pieces. And you already mentioned them. The first was kind of like, I, I call it dogmatism, but basically the the rigidity of that worldview and how it started to conflict with everything else I was learning about life and how there was no room to integrate. But then the second thing was... I called it results at the time. I, I was, I just felt like it wasn't working. I felt like I had uh, behavioral challenges that Christianity wasn't giving me good solutions to, but uh, modern psychology started to give me some answers or other practices started to give me some answers. And I share this because um, I think people can connect to personal stories a bit better, but also I, I realized that if I had a different personality, I may have had a totally different journey and you said um, people can kind of bricolage or create their own religions, but I'm realizing that certain personalities are more suited for that than others. And sure. uh, I'm just kind of going out on a limb here, but um, 
so Alexander Bard, which I found out about your stuff through him, he has this theory about um, the basically the primary tribe having different personality, different archetypes, and a small subset of those archetypes he called shamanic or shamanoids. And these are people who are extremely high in openness. These are people who um, are able to take multiple steps back from the culture and reflect on it with a decent amount of comfort. Maybe they can take psychedelics and not have their entire lives thrown apart. But it's a very small subset of the population. It just occurred to me that maybe those people are equipped to crafting their own religions. And that task is not as uh, daunting and chaotic as it would be for almost everybody else. Sure. But the, the problem here, and this is the question I have for you, is it seems like now everybody has to do that, right? Like, even if you are a sincere religious person, if you're, if you're a Christian, you're now faced with the, the pluralism and modernity and all the, the, the chaos of different ideas on the internet. And so everybody has to be shamanic to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's just not, that's going to be very hard for 95% of people. So I, I wonder if you, if you kind of agree with that framing and what you would suggest to someone who feels like this task is way too daunting for them. I think part of it is uh, starts early in life because a lot of it to me is like some of it may be psychological makeup, kind of like you're born with it in a way. But I think a lot of it is also how you're raised. Because if you grow up around parents who ask your opinion, who mm. don't try to tell you this is the way it is, but they try to show you why they come to a certain conclusion and actually welcome your input in saying, hey, do you see why we are doing this? So, because if we try this, this is kind of what could, you know, you involve a kid into a process where there's a discussion, where they have to think for themselves, where they are made part of whatever the conclusion you're trying to lead them is. That's a whole different way of growing up, mm -hmm. where that kid is going to be way better equipped with dealing with choices. And your dad was a philosopher, with... right? So I'm assuming you were raised that way. In a very anti-authoritarian way. There mm -hmm. was never a sense of you do this because I tell you. There was never that. It was very much, uh, let me show you why. And let's also talk about your idea, which may be completely different from where I want to go. And I'm going to give you my perspective why I don't think it works. But hey, it's in play. Let's talk about it. Maybe it does. If you convince me that it does, if you can show me that it does, I'm, I'm not married to any one idea. So let's, mm -hmm. let's talk about it. Which is kind of the way, for example, with my daughter, I've always played the game, has always been, we are not, we are not fighting each other, which I want to impose a certain viewpoint and you have your viewpoint. We have the exact same goal, which is we want you, we both want you to be happy and to be healthy. So now that we have the same goal, all we got to figure out is the strategies to deliver that result. And strategies are flexible. Strategies are, again, if you convince me that your strategy work, I'll adopt it. I don't care. I'm not married to any one strategy. I just want you to be happy and healthy. That changes the parameters completely because now you are a team thinking together about what could deliver the best result. And it's a 180 compared to the way most people are raised. 
And again, to me, it doesn't seem like a rocket science. It seems very basic. It seems like, yeah. well, that's a fairly, if this is exceptional. We got a problem as a society because it's a pretty low bar in my mind. Mm-hmm. But then you look around and you're like, oh, it is exceptional when you realize that most people don't. And I think that also has an impact on what you're describing at the social level, how most people are not equipped for it. Agreed. Most people are not equipped for it. And huge element is because they were never taught to be equipped for it. They were never really walked through the process of making choices, of thinking about the evidence and the results and all of that. And how do you fix that? You know, other than, uh, you know, you start over as a new body another yeah. time. That's But of course, you know, when you haven't received it from your parents, it's harder. It's a mm-hmm. harder game for sure. Um, and some people will be more inclined and more able to do it for themselves without having received it by reading a lot, by researching, by doing this, than other people who are not suited for that by temperament. And definitely they haven't, whatever stuff was in there to begin with, hasn't been encouraged. And so by the time they are 20 or 30 or something, it's very much atrophied and there's not a whole lot Mm. there that they can stimulate. So I think that's kind of where it's at. This uh, this is really good parenting advice, um, which... I've realized whenever you hear good parenting advice, it's also really good self-talk advice. Mm-hmm. So approaching yourself as if you're your own parent um, and and applying really good parenting advice is actually very good for any kind of personal development. Um, and I just had an insight, as you said that, which is it connects to this theme of sovereignty that's been quite important to me in the last few years where I want to behave in a way that is in service of your sovereignty as well as mm-hmm. it is mine, um, which seems like an easy enough thing to do or to say. But I realized that, for instance, I would have a tendency to give people advice if I thought I knew it was best for them. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. well, I'll just do this. And I'd like solve the problem. And I'd get an ego high because, you know, I'm solving somebody's problem or whatever. But whenever I do that, I'm not actually in service of their sovereignty. And some people would also play into that. And they'd want me to fix their problems. And then I'd get into these like pathological dyadic relationships where we're both getting some sort of psychological fix out of it, but no one's actually leveling up in terms of their sovereignty. And I bring it up because what you just described, where you speak to your daughter in a way that is including her in the process of achieving this goal that you have for her, that she also has Mm -hmm. for herself. Implicit in that is you're trusting her to come up with good strategies mm-hmm. and um, develop the capacity to advocate for them and execute them and also to have goals for herself. And I, it sounds very um, plain and simple when I lay it out like this, but I think that's in, an incredibly profound way for people to relate to each other on an ongoing basis. Uh, and for whatever reason, it's, it's very hard. Um, yeah, that's what's yeah. funny, that it's the fact that it's hard. Right. Mm-hmm. Because when you think there's a line in the Tao Te Ching that's absolutely hilarious, but it's true, that says, uh, my teachings are very easy to understand and very easy to practice, but nobody understands them and nobody practices. <laughs> and I felt it's, it's obviously a joke in a way, but it's not because, you know, when you spell it out like this, most of the things in life that make you a good human being are not that hard. It's mm-hmm. not really such a crazy concept to 
Talk to your kids like they are actual human beings. Don't talk to them as props in your life. He's like, that's pretty basic. You know, it doesn't require a genius to figure that out, except the vast majority of people don't. Or, you know, we can go down the list. Say you want to be in a relationship and one of the primary things you do is be insanely kind and loving to the other person. Talk to them like their happiness is the most important thing. And, and you expect the same back. That's pretty straightforward. And it's, again, mm. it doesn't take a genius level IQ to treat each other with insane kindness and sweetness. And you have fun, you can play, but ultimately, you know, you show that you adore each other and you do anything. Not a crazy concept, but, you know, that would, if people could actually apply it for real, that would kill the whole self-help industry around yeah. relationship because it would be that easy, right? It's right. just... So it's funny how it works because the solutions half of the time, I mean, the solution to big problems like, you know, environmental or these or that, those are complicated. But the solutions to interpersonal stuff usually are not that complicated. Mm -hmm. They are pretty simple. And yet the overwhelming majority of people don't practice them. And a lot of it has to do with how the way you are taught to, that, you know, you're, you're playing uh, you're going by a screenplay that has been handed to you when you're a kid that's not very healthy. It's not very well thought of. And it's hard to develop the tools to rewrite it from scratch. I also think a big reason why people don't execute on this, at least not consistently, is because their nervous system gets activated and triggered by different things that are making life hard for them. So I'm just imagining... And I know my parents went through this, but parents in general trying to manage the household and, you know, mm -hmm. the finances and then raise three kids. And then your kid does something that goes against your yep. idea for them. And if you, you should treat them like, you know, like a, like a human being and speak, you know, carefully with them, et cetera. But in that moment, you just get activated and you experience mm -hmm. fear, anger, et cetera. And then you, you act from that place. And then maybe, oh, yeah. you know, later when you're cooled off you realize that was not a wise way to to approach it but in in practice it's very hard to maintain that uh, that clarity and i i think um there are things you can do to uh to improve your capacity to maintain calm in these situations like meditation and journaling and stuff like that no you're 100 percent correct and i appreciate that you keep it real in that sense because it's true i mean i've had plenty of moments where suddenly I'm raising my voice, I'm acting like an asshole, and I'm just like, why? Because some little kid uh, poured milk, spilled milk for the second time on the right. floor. It's like, that's why you feel entitled to get mad. Shut up, man. It's like, <laughs> and you know, some, but also, you know, the same way you're trying to be kind to others, you also try to be kind with yourself. Because, you know, my reaction, I would feel very ashamed, very like, what the hell is wrong with me? You know, why mm -hmm. did I raise my voice to a poor kid who just has no fault other than being a kid, you know? And so I would make her part of this, though. I would be like, you know what? What I just did, that wasn't cool at all. Let me show you why I did it, though. I did it because I'm tired because I'm frustrated, because I'm working a lot, because I'm trying to do this and that for you and for me. And so my ability to handle it is a bit reduced. And uh, doesn't mean that the way I reacted is justified. It's not. I still mm -hmm. shouldn't do it. But here is why it happened. And here is what I'm going to try to do not to do it again, because you don't deserve it. It's not right to you, you know? So I'm both like 
making her understand that what I just did is not okay. And at the same time, explaining what brought me to that point, which builds a certain empathy and trust, because then she's like, okay, I understand where you're coming from a little more. She under, and she actually becomes invested also in my feelings, in how I'm mm-hmm. feeling about it, rather than just me, I'm suddenly, I'm just a dick because I'm a dick. That's it, you know, there's, and so then again, it becomes, and also it builds trust because it shows that you're willing to acknowledge mistakes. They are mm-hmm. willing to point it out and say, yeah, that was not okay. Here is why I do it, but that doesn't mean that I'm justified in doing it. You know, it's just explaining why I do it, but that's not. And, you know, and that becomes part of the process because you're absolutely right. Nobody, when you're sleep deprived and tired and stressed and you have 10,000 things, nobody's going to be perfect. Nobody's always going to react the perfect way. And so it's important. What do you what do you do in those moments? It's not mm-hmm. just what do you do when everything works out perfectly. It's like, well, thank you. That's easy enough, you know? Right. <laughs> That's a request. But it's like, what do you do when it doesn't, when you are stumbling, when those moments are challenging? And I think that's where the value of a philosophy shows up the most. How does it help you in your lowest moments? Mm-hmm. How do you think of love? Is it a metaphysical foundational thing or is it just some word that human beings give to a collection of behaviors that make us feel good? I think it's, um, I think it's at the, I don't mean to sound like the Beatles or something, but it's at <laughs> the core of everything. You know, it's yeah. like without love, none of the other stuff matters really. It's, uh, I, that's why I, I like to see what the lives of the people who say certain things look like. I want to see how much uh, love and kindness. And again, love gets tricky sometimes because it's such an overused word, even though it's so meaningful. So I also sometimes speak of kindness, which sounds so Mm. plain in a way, but I like it because it takes it to a slight. Because kindness has a certain... uh, it's not just being polite, which is, you know, you follow good social rules of etiquette. There's a certain loving kindness. There's a certain loving quality to it. But it's uh, more mundane, more in all sorts of interactions. You don't just reserve it for the special loved ones kind of thing. And so I'm interested in qualities that build kindness, that build generosity, that builds, which ultimately are manifestations of love, you know. And I think it's so important to, which again, is like if you never had it growing up, it's hard because it's like a muscle, right? It's like Mm -hmm. if you've never been exposed to real love in the relationship, both around you just to use as a model, as well as people giving you love that way, then it's harder to develop it as an adult. But it's just such a central thing. Like to me, as a parent, as a husband, wife, whatever, somebody in a relationship, as a friend, the number one you can, the number one thing you can do is always make the other people feel extremely loved. Mm. And that can, uh, doesn't mean you cannot make mistakes or you cannot do stupid things in the course of a relationship, but that, that part, if somebody never doubts that you adore them, that you care for them, you start already the race 10 steps ahead. You know, it's like that's without that, you can do all the right stuff and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, If Nietzsche was with us in this conversation right now, 
and I asked him the same question. What do you think he would say? I think Nietzsche is interesting because there is, to me in his writings, there's a ton of uh, heart. That's what I like about him. That yeah. There's a mountain of heart. His life, however, was brutally hard. He was extremely lonely, did not find ways to connect with the people around him, not romantically and not really in any other ways. So there's the Nietzsche paradox that ways that he's this really, despite all the flamboyant statement and toughness and intensity that he has, he's a really tender-hearted guy. He has a sweet mm. heart to it. You know, there's a sweetness that shows up in his writings. Sometimes hidden two or three layers below, but, but it's there nonetheless. And yet he clearly suffered from uh, the inability to manifest it in a real way in, uh, in relationships. And that's partially probably on him, partially bad luck, partially growing up in the Germany of the late 1800s. Bunch of factors played into it. The end result is that things don't quite click. So I think there's also a bit of uh, frustration with it. You know, on one end, he has all this tremendous stuff to give on an emotional level. And on the other end, he doesn't find the channel to be able to give it to somebody and receive it mm. back. And so it's, uh, in many ways, the Nietzsche story is a tragic story. I ask because my reading of Nietzsche is... It always seems like that is there's a subtle, as I, I like how you said heart instead of love mm -hmm. because there, there's heart in the way that he writes, um, but it it almost feels like he he de-emphasizes the primacy of love because he's emphasizing the primacy of will, and he's criticizing Christianity so brutally that it, it's easy to go away from that and to think that oh this person didn't recognize that actually love is so foundational and present mm -hmm. and maybe that wasn't the like he he that wasn't his his role like he wasn't trying to speak about it um but i I'm, i was curious what you think because you've read him much more closely than i have and I'm, I'm basically wondering if love was a blind spot for nietzsche or if it's actually there and i just haven't seen it i think it's um i think there's a basic frustration there for him where yeah. he, you know, why all this emphasis on willpower and intensity and all those other things that Nietzsche brings to the table? Because that's all he's got left, you know, mm. because he lacks in his interactions with human beings. He never went click where suddenly the flow of love could go back and forth in a beautiful so Nietzsche was a guy who I think in some ways an absolute genius, but at the same time was an extremely lonely guy. And again, partially it's on him, partially probably not. Sometimes it's just bad luck. Sometimes yeah. the cards you are given don't lend themselves to, you know, you can have played the cards well all the time and you just, for whatever reason, don't run into the people who are at the right time and the right situation that you can click with. And so I think for him, it becomes inevitable to put the accent in other places because otherwise you'll be putting the accent on the one thing he doesn't get to have, which mm. of course is just sad. And, yeah. you know, you need to find something else to wake up in the morning, you know? And so I think that's where it's at with him. In the beginning of the conversation, I think you said uh, the phrase vital philosophy and then 
when we were talking about EQ, you said he's life affirming. Mm -hmm. And then now we're, we're talking about Nietzsche who obviously would speak about the importance of, of living in a way that is life affirming. How has Nietzsche and EQ and other thinkers influenced your personal philosophy? And how do you think about this idea of, of life? Cause I know you're also a Taoist and there's like a sure. synthesis there as well. I think it's about, you know, Nietzsche, you get uh, the passion, the willpower, that resilience, that toughness in the face of obstacles. Uh, EQ, I love his ability to just enjoy life, which is a mm. rare ability because so often the people who are the most sensitive are the ones who suffer the most. So sometimes sensitivity becomes a curse, and then you're stuck with these uh, bad archetypes of either superficially happy or deep and suffering. And they are both terrible because, you know, you don't really want to be that superficial, but at the same time, you don't want to be deep if depth is a sentence to suffering. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, this sucks. Both options are terrible. So the question then becomes, how do we, how do you combine depth with heart? How do you combine depth with happiness? And I think that's where a guy like Kikyu comes in, in a beautiful kind of way, in a way that I've rarely seen uh, among most philosophers or thinkers or anywhere, really. So with Kikyu, what you get is uh, the ability to enjoy life, which sounds basic, except that it's not, because I don't know how you grew up, but for me, most of, my, most of what I saw as the archetypes around me where either superficially happy in a way that felt kind of vapid and sort of stupid or deep but suffering. And I'm mm. like, well, I don't really want to be either. I don't really want to be that superficial. It feels fake and doesn't speak to me. And I don't want to be miserable because if the price of sensitivity is misery, that doesn't sound like a particularly fun deal. So to find an archetype like the way you live this life, where he lives his life with uh, tremendous intensity, tremendous presence, tremendous, you know, there's, there's a great degree of sensitivity, but he still manages a way to be, to find a way to be happy. And mm. I love that. That's like such a beautiful insight that I haven't had in the lives of many people. And, uh, and I think that's also something that people respond to because so often, if I were, I was noticing sometimes with things I say or other people say, when people put the accent on the positive, people may be like, oh, good for you, but how does that relate to my life? It's kind of like there's almost a certain either envy or a sense of like, well, great, that has right. nothing to do with where I'm at. If you put the emphasis on just the tragedy and heartbreak of life, people often can relate because everybody goes through that but it's also not very empowering. So the people who have been through a lot and yet can find a way toward happiness tend to have an impact on other human beings that's powerful because it's like, oh, you're not just saying this stuff because you're a dumbass who doesn't know any better. You have been through the same I've been. You have been through the same challenges and you're telling me that there's a way around it. Okay, now I'm interested. Now I want to hear what you have to say. 
Because otherwise it's like either you have been through what I've been through and you have also been destroyed by it or you have never been through it. So you're talking because you don't know any better and one day life will humble you down and you'll realize it. And, and so I think there's something interesting to me in the ability to bring both together. Yeah, and it's the paradox of being life-affirming because mm -hmm. the more you love life, the more you live it fully the more painful it is as well when yeah. people that, or yeah the more you love someone the more painful it is when you lose them and, and that's um, the game of life right it's yeah brutal it's being life affirming is trippy when you consider how brutal life is yeah um i uh a few years ago i had um a really profound year when I took uh, a lot of mushrooms that year. And one of the trips I took mm -hmm. was 6.4 grams and it blasted me somewhere else. And then I don't think I could process what I experienced. So I suppressed it for a few months. And then a few months later, I, I took a, an edible, like a very small amount of cannabis. And I had a flashback to that trip. And then I got like re-traumatized by all this stuff that I was wasn't able to process then but the, the the thing that hit me the hardest and even as i say this i feel like almost some pre-anxiety talking about it because it was such a heavy realization it was it was as if for the first time in my life i really realized simultaneously how precious everything really is and how contingent all of this is and how lucky i am to to have to have this experience and how i'm actually one day going to die and that's mm -hmm. like i've always known that right but i really knew it in that moment uh -huh. and what ensued was the cascade of thoughts that come from that which is everything that i love will one day die everyone that i love will one day die that these beautiful opportunities are finite and then i went into like a full-blown panic attack because i just i just didn't know how to how to deal with that fact and i realized that i thought i knew i thought i i thought i already knew about death i thought i already sure. processed it but it was in that moment when basically i guess to summarize what i'm saying it was when i realized how precious everything was that's when my death anxiety was dialed up the most as well and it took many months for me to reconcile those two things and every day i woke up with this feeling of dread and anxiety but also uh humble gratitude and awe and it, over time I started to integrate that a little bit more. And I think I also forgot about it, right? Coming back to the thing of relighting the fire. I, mm -hmm. At some point, this, you know, assumptions started to be put all over the world and I started to lose the potency of that insight. But yeah, that's the thing with being life-affirming. It, it, it's exactly as you described. You, your sensitivity is also a liability. But if, you, if you're able to hold on to both, then you'll be such a powerful beacon and a source of inspiration for other people because they will actually trust that you have something to say to them. Mm -hmm. 100%. And it's way easier said than done because, of course, is it's easy to be fearless when you have nothing to lose. It's mm. easy to be fearless when everything sucks so you don't care about losing it. Not that easy when you have a lot of things that you love because, of course, you're attached, you know, it's... Some ideal Buddhist state, you can talk about love without attachment, but good luck. That's not a very human thing to achieve. 
And so that ability to both love sings tremendously, knowing that every single one of them, sings and people and state of consciousness and whatever you're attached to, if every single part of that gets taken away from you, that's a hard one. That's a really, really, really hard one. And that's when you realize, I mean, as straight as that sound, you do realize that the only safe place in this is the present moment. Mm. Because the future is going to bring the death of everything you care for. And the past is usually either nostalgia or regrets or things where you can't do much about it anyway. So we're really the only breathing place you have is the present moment where because if you get lost into the future is anxiety if you get lost into the past is either nostalgia or regrets and so being absolutely loving the present moment without any hope that it repeats itself because it's all in transition it's all moving and it's all impermanent ultimately and which is, of course, the opposite of the way we're wired, because the more you love something, the more you want to have it forever. You know? yeah. Everything that we do is this. Uh, think about even like marriage vows. It's all about forever. And it's like, uh, you know, it, there is no forever. Yeah. And uh, your words here have a lot of gravitas to me because I know you've written before about a personal tragedy that you mm-hmm. experienced. Sure. Um Maybe, maybe you can t- tell the listeners about that and how that changed your relationship with the world. Yeah, I mean, when I was with my wife for about 11 years, and then we just had our daughter, my, and, you know, by the time my wife died, my daughter was about a year and a half. So it was very, very early in the game. And she went from being super healthy, strong, athletic to dying in the span of six months because of a brain tumor. Which in some way, I mean, better six months than six years in the sense that it's not a fun, there's nothing fun about that process. It's brutally hard. So I think even for her, she would rather have had it quick than slow. Mm. But again, everybody's different in that regard. So that's actually bullshit what I'm saying because it's different for everyone. But in this particular case, yeah, it clearly is a traumatic thing. You know, you have... uh, uh, somebody that you are super close to that you love that you've been in this relationship for over a decade you had a kid together and boom and literally they die in your arms you know and so that's talk about impermanence right mm-hmm. that's where doesn't matter how you know that realization which is always the most awful of realization or you really doesn't matter how strong or powerful you think you are at the end of the day, you cannot protect the ones you love because you live in an impermanent world where ultimately you have no control over the great scheme of things. That's a hard one. That's a really hard one to deal with. And, uh, and I mean, in some way, it does give you a sense of defiance because mm-hmm. it's like, and again, not that the universe necessarily has a personality and is doing anything to you like it cares. But it's sometimes helpful to think in that way where you're like, you have just tried to squash me and you mostly succeeded, but I'm also still here. And so screw you, you know, as horrible as everything that has been handed to me right now is, you know what, I'm going to enjoy a glass of wine right now. 
and that I have power on, that one mm. little gesture, or I'm going to do something that makes me feel good in this one little space in the present, which again, doesn't change at all the outcome of what happened or the outcome of the future on which I have not very little control. But uh, you get that defiant happiness in finding those moments of, you know, the EQ line, right? You know, throw me into hell and I'll find a way to enjoy it kind of thing. And it's not denying that there's horrendous trauma or there's horrendous suffering through all that, but that, you know, unless you shoot yourself, which I don't judge anybody for, because sometimes things, I get it, things can be way more overpowering than you can handle, and not just for a moment, maybe for the years at a time. But if you make that choice to live, then you might as well find ways to live happily for whatever moments you have, you know, it may not be, nothing is everlasting. It's not everlasting happiness. But if you can string together this one moment and another and another and another and another to be happy, I think you're doing a great job. Yeah. Um, when, when I first heard this story, uh, when I was preparing for the podcast, it reminded me of a, a similar experience of defiance in, in my life where uh, two years ago, a very close family friend, someone who was a little brother to me, committed suicide and um the very night when the police came and i i i was home and they i found out first they were looking for his brother who was yeah. my roommate at the time within 20 minutes of hearing the news we were all collected together in a room realizing what we had to do we had to now call the parents like he uh -huh. had to call his mom and his dad and tell them that their their son is dead and then i had to call my parents and we were like a family so we were faced with one of the hardest moments of, of our lives and we were crying about it and we're just dealing with the, the situation. And then we realized that it was uh, Friday the 13th and I don't know who said it first, but one of us was like, oh, that fucking bastard had to kill himself on Friday the 13th. And we right. all started laughing. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's dark, right? Like, yeah. why, why are you guys laughing? Your, you know, your, your, your brother is, is gone. But I, I remember that moment of a, a joke, like never being too far from a joke. Like it doesn't matter how fucked yep. up the situation is. There's like some little thread of humor that your, you know, defiant human brain can grab mm -hmm. onto and, and actually laugh. Like I, that to me was, was very profound. And obviously there's is still an insane tragedy and we all are still recovering and, and whatnot. But um, I think that that solidified the importance of sense of humor. And I've always had a dark sense of humor and I realized that, that there's a purpose for that. And I yeah. sense from the way you speak that you also have, actually it's, it's interesting. You, you have a, a set, like there's a darkness in the way that I, I hear you like joke around, mm -hmm. but there's also this, this like compassion, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, and maybe, maybe those two things come together, but yeah, I, really I wonder do. if you have a reaction to that. Yeah, they really do. I think what you're referring to, you know, Gallo's humor is one of the most powerful things that human being can do in the face of senseless tragedy where you have no power to do anything about it. You know, it's like that's uh, in a way the ultimate human freedom is finding the way to laugh in a situation that's anything but laughable. You know, shit. I remember when uh, when I had to go, you know, funeral i forget what they call that place but in any case the place where you make arrangements for funerals and stuff 
And so I have to pay this guy for cremating my wife's body, right? Mm. It's not a happy occasion. It sucks. And the guy clearly spending every day with people who are traumatized walking into his office and having to discuss money and stuff. And, and so at one point he tells me how much it is. And I don't remember, whatever it was like. It's not cheap. So, you know, you're still paying. And so I go like, okay. And I pull out my wallet and I take out a quarter and I take out a dime and I take out another dime and I take out. And, you know, he's looking at me like, what the hell? is he trying to pay me coins here? Is like he's trying to pay whatever, like a thousand or two thousand dollars in coins. Is like, and then uh, you know, I did it just enough for him to just his eyes to widen a bit, and then I was like, I'll just fuck it with you, you know. <laughs> and then I just wrote him a check, and the guy laughed this ass off, and he was like, you know what? I don't get to laugh much in my business. That mm. was that was funny. That was. And again, it doesn't change the fact of where I'm at. I'm in a terrible situation emotionally, practically on every level. But, you know, the little moment makes you feel just 5% less of a victim. Mm. Uh, and by victim, I mean powerless, you know, a powerless victim. Because ultimately, you're still a victim of circumstances. It still sucks. But you are in doing little things like that, you're refusing to be victimized and feeling 100% powerless. You're trying to reclaim that minimum of, okay, what I can do in a situation where realistically I can do anything. Yeah, and I think that is one of the most fundamental things about being human. It's like the the positive side of our irrational, emotional, passionate mm-hmm. nature. And it can be applied to tragedy. I think it can also be applied to a sense of meaninglessness. Sometimes the darkest, most meaningless moments of my life, I just choose to to add light and meaning to it. And yep. I realize that's actually a move that you can do. Like that's yep. that's a playable move on the chessboard of, of life. Um, and I, I wish more people knew that. Yeah, even, and that's kind of where I go back to kindness. You know, in a situation mm-hmm. where you feel absolutely powerless, and maybe you can do much even to change your own mood. If you can do one thing that brings a smile to somebody, that clearly improves somebody's day, well, you have done something. You have had the power to do something that had an impact on the world. And so I love that. Those are those cases where to me it's like, you're not just, oh, being kind, like a superficial, happy-go-lucky thing. You're you are intimately familiar with life's tragedies and you found a way to make somebody else's day better because you know all too well what it's like to be extremely sad, you know? And I think it's like, what more can you ask from what you want me? Yeah. Daniele, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs>